Hi, friends. Welcome back to this week's episode. Uh, it's a funny thing doing this podcast. I get starstruck when I talk to people who I feel have been speaking to me for years. It happened with Chris Anderson, uh, the head of TED, and it happened again with Krista Tippett. She is the creator and host of the Spiritual Nourishment. That is the podcast on being. Uh, there is no one, literally no one, of any spiritual consequence that she hasn't interviewed in the last decade. From the Dalai Lama to Mary Oliver, she sat down with them all. Uh, if you don't know On Being, then run and subscribe. It's just glorious. And she's the most magnificent, calming, insightful interviewer. So it was genuinely intimidating. <laughs> Um, she's the recipient of the National Humanities Medal at the White House. She was given it by Barack Obama and has also won a Peabody Award. Uh, although she is the warmest, loveliest person imaginable, it meant that she wasn't that intimidating after just a few minutes. She spoke to me from her home in Minneapolis. Here's our conversation. Krista, this is truly an enormous thrill for me. It really is. You are someone who has punctuated my life for so long. I have listened to you. You have been the score to so many drop-offs for me and sitting in traffics and you've ta come on so many hikes with me. I, it's that curious intimacy of radio that is uh, both so universal and so deeply intimate in a way that um, the visual medium isn't. You, you, you know, I suppose these days you can watch uh, whatever you like on a bus or a train, but I don't think of it that way. I think of a visual medium as being um, very private and, and very concretized. And audio uh, allows for this just deep intimacy. You can be in my bedroom with me. Uh, only a book that I can think of uh, is the same sort of technology that allows for the illusion of knowing someone in the way that I feel I know you. Um, so I, I want to start by just thanking you for all the ways you've enriched my life and those of many, many others, but you mm. really have, I feel like you kept me company through the pandemic, uh, through a Trump administration, through uh, some dark times. And, uh, you know, I had this season I had Chris Anderson, who I uh, love and, and who I felt similarly about. There are just voices in one's life that uh, keep a steady metronome of sanity and insight and uh, truth-telling that becomes so important in troubled times, I think. And so you're one of them. So thank well, you for being here. I'm speechless. That means so much to me. Well, thank you for for having my conversation with me. So, so I um, I'm going to begin having listened to you so often. I'm going to begin by handing you back a version of your question okay. that you open with, and I'm going to ask you about your literary background, mm. where you began with books as a child, what your world of, uh, what your world of books was? Well, you know, what's interesting is I had to think about that, um, at when you, with this invitation and your mm -hmm. question. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, um, you know, sometimes people say to me, oh, you must have grown up in a home where with great conversationalists, but I'm the mm -hmm. other story when you don't grow up with that. And so you yes. develop this great longing for it. And I would say that, um, that my life with books is similar. I didn't really, it, it didn't grow up with people. I mean, there was a little, you know, there were the Hardy boys, <laughs> you know, there were, um, that I was just, I remember, um, learning to read for me. I started school late just because of when my birthday was. And I, I still remember, I mean, I was just, and no, I think I asked my parents to teach me to read and they said mm -hmm. they were going to wait until the teachers could do it. And I was uh -huh. just so, so impatient to learn to read. And, mm -hmm. and I always loved reading, but I wasn't exposed to a lot of books outside school. And I grew up mm -hmm. in a, you know, small town in Oklahoma. It wasn't a really literary place. Mm -hmm. And I just, um, you know, my father tended to read kind of journalistic political books and my mother read 
whatever the equivalent then was of Danielle Steele novels. And I would just, just consume whatever, ever was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually I, I didn't, I chose not to put this on my list for you of my five, but interestingly enough, um, the first big book that I, um, and I truly mean, I literally mean big, um, that someone handed me and I had this idea of the possibility of how a book could take you into a world was, was Ayn Rand's um, Atlas Shrugged, which mm. suddenly in recent years became something people were talking about again. It's a 1,200-page book, and it was a yeah. boyfriend. And his father had read it and passed it on to him. And, you know, it was about – but, and, you know, it's a huge epic tale, which also had a very intense philosophy at its core – it's not a book I would love now, but I remember just, you know, 1,200 pages, mm. spending two, two days completely absorbed in this story. Mm. And, um, and that was the book that started it for me. Yeah. It's funny. I, I relate. I think we've had Atlas Shrugged. And if we haven't, we've definitely had Ayn Rand on the show before. Yeah. There is something of the rite of passage of, of that book. There does that feel book. something. Yeah. At there 12. feels something. Yeah. You were you were twelve when you read I it. I think I was twelve. Yeah, twelve. Oh, or oh my lord! Oh, yeah. you caught up fast, man. That's precocious. I think of it as like <laughs> deep into one's adolescence or maybe early twenties for that. Yeah. Twelve. Oh my lord! I'm amazed you could lift it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, so let's start with your first book. Uh, this, I was so thrilled to learn about this book. I didn't know of it, and I didn't astonishingly know of Parker Palmer either. So mm. your first book is called Let Your Life Speak, Listening for the Voice of Vocation mm-hmm. by Parker Palmer. And it was published in 1999. Mm. Tell me who you were before you read this book and then who you were after you read it. So my memory is that I discovered this book when I was going through a really serious depression, which was in my mid thirties. And, um, I was, the thing about depression is that it's not just that you can't see your, see your way to the other side. You can't imagine any longer that there is another side to get to. Mm. And I was looking for books that, somehow gave me um and i was looking for books right because i'm a i'm a book word writing mm. person i wanted mm. i wanted to see this in black and white that mm. someone had been to this country called depression and emerged and could describe it and that is a one of the big story you know parker palmer is a great quaker teacher and elder and a spiritual leader and he writes with great honesty um and intricacy in that book, uh, among other things, about his depression and about vocation and finding yourself, and and somehow those things can be connected. And um, so it's 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 literally true that before I read that book, I mean that was my life pre depression, and I wasn't the same person. I you know after, and it wasn't just about how the depression changed me. It was about what I what I needed, what what it gave me to learn about myself. Mm. Um, so it was a huge, huge turning point in my life. And that book, because I, I knew of Parker Palmer, uh, I admired him from afar. Um, I think in some ways, I, even though I hadn't met him, I did later meet him, but I hadn't met him. I, I thought of him in some ways as a mentor, just, mm. just through the books I had read. So this wasn't your, the first of his books that you'd it read? It wasn't you'd the read first others. of his books. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like he had already been kind of a teacher to me. And then to understand this about him, uh, it just made him that much more of a companion. And it's Mm. just a beautiful book. And it's also, I think, you know, it's about let your life speak, he presents as a Quaker phrase, and just that as a gift, right? Yes. Yes. It's beautiful. I, I, Loved. I mean, the title alone had me, as you say. I didn't even know it as a Quaker expression. So to do a deep dive into this book, I found um, deeply moving. And 
and thank you for sharing that about your depression. It makes such sense to, I, I relate entirely to looking for the written word for solace and right. for some solution, not just solace, but, mm-hmm. but someone who can, um, actively grab me and, you know, give me a step by step out of there. Yeah. Um, I was so struck by the, 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 the ally, alliance of vocation with as a way to emerge from mm-hmm. depression and the, the way to quote unquote find your vocation is to get quiet enough to hear what that voice might be telling you. I, I wrote a, I, I try and find excerpts always of the book so that people can familiarize themselves and get a taste oh, of yeah. it. And I was struck by this uh, quote that I really loved. Before you tell your life what you intend to do with it, listen for what it intends to do with you. Before you tell your life what truths and values you have decided to live up to, let your life tell you what truths you embody, what values you represent. So this idea that vocation doesn't come from something willed uh, that you it doesn't matter sort of how noble it is, but that it comes from something innate that needs to be quiet enough to emerge mm-hmm. is such a beautiful idea. Did you have um, did did you discover a, a vocation from from reading this? What was the active solace that it gave you, you think? Well, it, it all of this coinc- converged and coincided for me. So I was, um, at that moment, I would look back now and realize that this idea of this work that has now been my life's work was forming in me. Mm. And uh, it's a strange thing to say that I don't think I could have realized it without my depression. Again, it's not Mm. the depression that did it. And you don't, you know, one doesn't want to romanticize this or wish it on anyone. No. But, you know, there's a, one of the things Parker talks about that made so much sense to me is, um, I think he tells a story in that book about a therapist who said to him, instead of, I, I won't get this right, but instead of imagining your depression as something that's pushing you to the ground, could you could you imagine your depression as something that's 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 setting you on ground on which it is safe to walk? Mm. And I think that gets a little bit at what you were describing that we are we we all want to know what we're called to, and and I think calling is something that changes throughout a, the course of a life, and mm. there's so many callings that we have. Um, we can also work our way into life habits and patterns and activities that are taking us away, mm. not just from our deepest selves, but taking us away from ground on which it is safe to stand. And I, I think I had um, a lot of ways of being where I was so hard on myself um, and therefore hard on others around me. Mm. Uh, and I needed to be standing as you say, on that quiet ground, that steady ground of reality to really walk into what I now would say was my vocation. Hmm. That's beautifully put. The, uh, the other line that I had underlined was, um, the life I am living is not the same as the life that wants to live in me, hmm. which right. I think is uh, right. just a beautiful question to hold. I, I've um, I've been sort of sitting with that. I, you know, act and I created this, invented this podcast as a way to talk to people about one of the things I love most, which is reading. And I write and all three, and I'm a mum, and so all four are <laughs> at war endlessly for yes. my attention. And there was a, a moment reading about this book where I really sat with Oh, did I, have I not got, have I picked too many vocations? Did I, did I choose these? Is there one of these that actually is the one I'm supposed to be doing? Have I got, I felt cluttered suddenly. I felt suddenly like called to get, get quiet enough to maybe know a little more. Um, 
Well, something I like that you call all of these things vocation, because I think something we've done in this culture is your vocation is your job, right? It's Mm -hmm. your title. It's the thing you're getting paid to do. Yeah. And I agree with you that we often, I mean, I think parenting is a vocation. It's a vocation. Yeah. And, um, and in the course of a life, you know, you're, you, you might be spending all of your life energy and passion on that at times. And and they all, they all intertwine. They do. They do. It's it's such a hard thing. It's such an interesting thing. I'm struck by this because I find that my reading tastes, uh, if I let them be, uh, will constantly veer towards reading about women who write about what it is to be an artist and a mother at the same time. Okay. Like if I could, I would read yeah. just sort of um, th- those th- across the ages, but that that would be where I mm-hmm. my taste would land. Thanks to this podcast, I have a much br- broader uh, range of books that I avail mm-hmm. myself of. But um, but it, I think it, it it allows me to see that is a really central question, and that it is timeless. That it's not just born out of being in twenty twenty one, but what it is to uh, to have this dual identity in a way that, in my experience, I don't see men being asked to hold both mm-hmm. at the same time. Um, I see it as an actor. You don't see men on the red carpet being asked who's looking after their children or what happened to their kids while they were on location shooting that movie. Whereas every woman is, is at some point that's going to come up in their, in their interview. And, um, but also just, you know, trying to write, trying to host a podcast with a six and an eight year old around it. It it, it is, there is, um, there is more at play, I think, than we allow ourselves when we make vocation be as binary as work or non non work. Mm-hmm. I keep a quote up on my wall that is Toni Morrison, and it says, "You are not the work you do; you are the person you are." And I find that very yeah. helpful <laughs> to be reminded. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's talk about your second book, which I did not know, and is interestingly, I think one of the most recent books, uh, recently published books that we've had on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was really, really fascinated and curious to learn about this book. Your second book is My Grandmother's Hands, oh, Racialized yes. Trauma and the Path to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies mm-hmm. by Resma Menachem. And it was published in 2017. And I only discovered that book in early 2020 before the pandemic mm. uh, because mm. I interviewed Resma Menachem. Mm. And, um, and that was the show that was actually supposed to go up for us the week the whole world or the week our part of the world locked down. Mm. And I sent, sent all my colleagues home and um, we realized we couldn't put a show on the air about racialized trauma when people were just wondering if they would have a job and in complete disarray about what would happen next. And um, yeah, Resma Menachem, who lives here in Minneapolis, as I do, mm-hmm. um, has been thinking so deeply about something that I think many of us opened to thinking more deeply about as mm-hmm. 2020 progressed. Um I remember a conversation I had with one of my producers about how sad she was that, that we weren't putting that show on the air and we just didn't know when it would be the right time again. And I said, well, I said, I agree. It's so powerful. I want other people to hear about this. Um, And I said, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say that I'm sure that a time will come soon again, where we will all need to talk about race. And then, Mm. you know, George Floyd was killed here in our city. Uh, And then I think, I think the show penetrated much more than it would have. I agree. So many of us had been softened and opened and, you know, this thing about Parker, the ground beneath our feet, we remembered it's never as solid as we believe it to be. And, kind of feeling for that ground together. And I think Resma just, you know, even before 2020, um, we know that this rate, that racial, that this history of racial violence, that the, that the, that the racial violence that's kind of has been kind of invisibly woven into the way we lead our lives um, is something that we, that we struggle to comprehend mm. uh, and to heal. And 
Resma Menakam, who is a therapist and a and an expert in trauma, and of course the science of trauma is quite new. Mm. Uh, we have new tools now that that they didn't have in the sixties um, mm-hmm. to understand how you know one of the things I think we're I mean to understand, and one of the things this helps us understand is why we can change so many laws, but if we if we don't change ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, laws can be fragile and we don't necessarily transform our world. And I think we're learning on so many frontiers that it's, everything is in our bodies. Right? We, yeah. we are embodied. We are embodied. And even what we've considered to be um, ideas or emotions uh, that you can talk about, you know, Resma is so attuned to, what's happening in us at a physiological level, at the level of our nervous systems. And one of the things he opened up for me, and so he talks, and you know, we are learning about epigenetics. We are learning about how trauma, and this is so fascinating and, and, and mysterious, how trauma transmits across generations and, and resilience transmits across generations and with genetic effect. And so I think the idea of, but really the science of racialized trauma, that a history of, of, of having ancestors who were enslaved, um, a history of having lived through Jim Crow, um, is with you. It is in mm-hmm. your body. Mm-hmm. And what he also opened up for me is um, what he opens up in that book, because he says it's for, he, and it's, you know, it, it's a book, but it's also exercises. It's right. really an experience. It's quite an unusual book. Um, and you really need to take months with that book. And mm-hmm. it's not just for us. He'll, he'll say black bodies or bodies of culture, mm-hmm. um, white bodies and blue bodies, which is police mm-hmm. bodies. Resma has brothers who are police officers. Mm-hmm. And the thing is in my white body, I hold the trauma of violence inflicted on my ancestors, but also that I haven't, that my ancestors inflicted. Mm. And it's it's a very new idea that we that we can start to heal ourselves by getting into our bodies. Mm. It's a whole new way. I think we know that the war of ideas or even the the, the therapeutic approach of ideas and talking about this, it doesn't it doesn't get us there. Yeah. So I, I think it's exciting. It's also hard. Yeah. Uh, it's challenging. But it is a new way forward. Mm-hmm. I was fascinated reading about this book. Yeah. And I, I read a book uh, a few years ago called The Body Keeps the Score. Yes. Um, which it turns out was is one it's of really Bessel's. It's really in that lineage. Yes. Van der Kolk is one of his, yeah. his mentors. So it felt like a chime or a, yes. a rhyme with, with what I'd learned there. But I was not um ready for how he for for how he presents the case of how this has been handed on and perpetuated mm-hmm. generationally and then cross culturally mm-hmm. um and that you know he draws a line between white uh, the way white Anglo-Saxon behavior from the Middle Ages, this background of torture and yes. uh, manipulation and yeah. capital punishment, uh, that this carries on through yeah. the white body. And then the white body flees to America, bringing all the history and legacy of those centuries of behavior with them. And that is that is the trauma that the white body brings to this continent and to trace it in that way felt fascinating. And as you say, it is so, so new, this science of trauma residing in the body, trauma being yeah. handed on uh, across generations so that a black or a, a body of culture, as he calls it, can walk in a room and not know why he doesn't feel safe in that yeah. room, but, but generations of not feeling safe mm-hmm. in a room with a white person will make him not be fully at ease. And that, as you say, the way in is through breath work, somatic work yeah. in order to calm uh, our bodies. What I was struck with, and I listened to your interview with him and then um, 
you did another, uh, wasn't so much an interview as a conversation. Oh, I with think, him and the, uh, Robin D'Angelo. Yes. Exactly. Which, which was, he requested um, after George Floyd was murdered. And he said, I would like to, and I, so of course I said, yes, we will do it. Yeah. Yes. It was fascinating because mm-hmm. it was so clearly in the heat of that yes. moment in history. Uh, he was so... Uh, quickened and enlivened and enraged. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was. Sad. It was. It was hard yes. to be with him for that. I bet it was. Yes. I bet it was. Yeah. Uh, I felt the uh, the weight of of mm-hmm. not defeat, but just the sheer volume of what he was up against. Yeah. We are all up against. What I was struck by in that conversation, and 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 it sort of emerges in the book, is that it is really up to us to do this work separately. That we actually, yes. it's it's hastening things to come and uh, rush it by by mm-hmm. us uh, sitting at the feet of a black person saying, "Tell me what I must learn." What you yes. must learn is to go away and do some work on your own, and yes. hope to pass that on to your children, and then maybe their children will know how to walk into a room and create uh, a better way of being. But uh, to lay the sen- the responsibility back on yourself and to take ownership for your body and Mm -hmm. for healing your trauma Mm -hmm. so that this begins to end. That felt radical. That felt Mm -hmm. radical and, and, um, profound. I was really touched by that. Yes. It it feels like agency that, that we didn't have before. It doesn't make it easy, but it's agency. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me a little, if you will, about the practices, what, what I'm assuming they are. And from what I could tell about the book, they were Breath work and and well, you know, there's and you know, it's, it's, I realize I should have looked back at it before because it's um I spent time with it in the middle of last year and then and haven't recently um it's it's all kinds of uh, I mean it's also just kind of telling your story to yourself so yes it's practices um and you know he talks so much about really parts of our body that we're only now learning about like the zoas muscle. Um, mm-hmm. The vagus nerve, the vagus nerve, the soul nerve, as Resma yeah. calls it. Um, so it's also um, it's also kind of coming to know these parts of ourselves and finding ways to access them. Um, and yeah, it's it's it it is some exercises and body practices, and it's also kind of inter- self interrogation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He, um, there was a line that I loved. The vital force behind white supremacy is our nervous systems. Yeah. That I felt was yeah. uh, not a sentence I have read in the many, many things I have read in the past year about race. Yeah. To say it is our nervous systems is, um, is so human and so universal. And mm-hmm. as you say, gives gives agency mm-hmm. in a way that bypasses um, so many sort of ideas that one might yes, have. Yes, that we can think it through. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about your third book, which is one of my favorites, and I'm so pleased to see it on the list and have a chance to talk about it. Your third book is When Things Fall Apart, Heart Advice yeah. for Difficult Times by Pema Chodron, and it was published in 1996. So tell me when and where you were when you read this book. I do not recall when I discovered it. Uh-huh. I, I was I I also last year I did an interview of, of, with Devendra Banhart, who's a musician, about this I, book. As it was I listened, our, our, I our listened to it. It was <laughs> wonderful. Yeah, because I just wanted because this I was turning to this book and I wanted other people to know about it if they didn't. Mm. And for that conversation, I just racked my brain about I couldn't remember an origin point. Mm. I feel like it's. I feel like it's been with me forever and I know it hasn't. Um, but I think also to that, to that point of the me post depression, Mm. which was a very, you know, perfectionistic, you know, always pushing, pushing, pushing. And, Mm. um, and for someone to say, you know, what, that, that, that the, the reality of life is that 
things are always falling apart and mm. it's not failure. It is the way of vital systems. Mm. It is the way of us. And even I think a great insight and invitation of spiritual life and of, of the best of our traditions is that they, they see this reality of human nature that when things fall apart, although we, we organize as well as we can for that not to happen. And when that does happen, those are often the greatest openings we have to grow mm -hmm. and to learn. And, um, and yet that's, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say that I'm always welcoming everything that goes through. <laughs> I'm not, but I've just, I have really found that book to be a lifeline, um, at times, when I really had to uh, acknowledge the reality that there's so much, there are things that cannot be controlled. And I mm -hmm. just had to be present and alive to what was actually happening. Mm -hmm. uh, and that book, um, you know, it's a tiny it's one of you said you it's one of your favorite books. It's tiny. Mm -hmm. I mean, it truly is a book that I I have a few versions of it in different places in my house. Uh, in the uh, same house, I love it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I have one up here by my sofa, and I have one downstairs. And the other day, I was in another room, and I found oh, I think in my trunk, of my car, I found another <laughs> copy of this book. And it truly is a book that you can. I can, I can, I mean, I have read it all the way through across time, mm. but I can open it up mm. to any page and I will feel generally that that's exactly what I needed to start mm. reading right then. Mm. Is it a book you have given to your, oh, does your yeah. son read it? Do your, is it a book you have handed, handed over to people? I have, and I'm pretty sure my daughter is older Mm -hmm. I know I gave it to her a few years ago. Mm -hmm. I, I'm actually sure I've given it to both of my children. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that they quite yet understand yeah. the falling apart <laughs> nature, yeah. and they, but they will. I think it's something you have to go through yeah. in a funny way, you know, to go back to your idea of nobody wishes a depression on anyone, but uh, the heart is made to be broken. <laughs> over and over in life and I don't, don't wish it on your children or mine but I know that's when I first came across Pema was mm. here in LA in my 20s and um, as lonely as it was possible to be as absolutely adrift from family from a culture that I didn't know um, I kept feeling that it was so utterly confusing that we speak the same language mm. as in England because we don't speak the same language and the humor is different and the cultural touch points are different. And I kept almost wishing that everyone would just speak German because then I would feel. <laughs> we could acknowledge how different <laughs> could, we really could. It would be a sort of yeah. tangible thing I could hang on to and go, it's okay, you are in a foreign <laughs> land. Yeah. But it kept being so confusing that the barista would smile and chat to me in English and in, in an American accent and that I could still walk away feeling as utterly adrift as I did. Yeah. And then, um, you know, all sorts of unsuitable men and uh, Pema definitely uh, was the raft I just climbed onto like a drowned rat mm -hmm. and clung to. And mm -hmm. uh, I was, like I say, just so relieved and thrilled to see her on, on a list. We, she hasn't been on the, the show yet, hasn't come up. And um, it's she's such an important part of my life. I felt so touched to see her on your list too. Yeah. Absolutely. She says, to stay with that shakiness, to stay with a broken heart, with a rumbling stomach, with the feeling of hopelessness and wanting to get revenge, that is the path of true awakening. Sticking with that uncertainty, getting the knack of relaxing in the midst of chaos, learning not to panic, this is the spiritual path. Getting the knack of catching ourselves, of gently and compassionately catching ourselves, is the path of the warrior. We catch ourselves one zillion times as once again, whether we like it or not, we harden into resentment, bitterness, righteous indignation, harden in any way, even into a sense of relief, a sense of inspiration. I love the compassion of that piece, mm -hmm. that it just is over and over and over just 
you know, catching yourself if you can and, and rewriting in that way. I, I also I, love how um, it's not, it's, there's something almost gritty. I mean, that she, that she really gets our sharp edges and our hard edges and, and the complexity and the strangeness mm. of what we do with reality. Yeah. yeah. She, um, she also, you know, I was noticing a, a sort of theme with her and with the Parker Palmer book mm-hmm. and with a couple of your others, too, or certainly with Rilke, who we'll talk mm-hmm. about next. Um, this getting quiet enough to hear another voice that may be one's own, maybe God, small G, big G, universe, whatever you, you call it. And I'm, I'm so struck by the the sort of iteration of that in your books and then your book that you've written and that you talk about so often in your interviews, this art of listening, this art of mm-hmm. um, generous listening. Um, Mary Oliver and you, or you quoted it to her calling uh, listening convivially. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm, I'm just struck by the echo of you doing that in your outer life uh with such grace and with such an extraordinary body of work to show for it and the cultivating of that inwardly to to listen to oneself convivially Mm. and generously is also um i was just noticing the sort of mirror of the inner and the outer in that way yeah well i think you know listening is is a it's a virtue. It's a social art. It's also a spiritual art. And I think for me, um, those are always, those always have an inward move and an outward move. So I, I, it's not that you, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to, I'm not sure I want to take it so far as to say that you can't be a good listener to others if you're not a good listener to yourself, but I'm not sure. I actually think, I, I think it's a, we have to cultivate this internally and kind of in both directions. I think so. I I would agree. I I see it on the most base level as a mum. If I haven't uh, sat with myself in whatever tiny way and listened to what I might need, be it a podcast or a walk or five minutes to stare at a wall or special time with my phone, (laughs) whatever that is, I can't hear my kids. I can't, I really can't take them in. I harden, I shut down. I haven't 10 minutes for them, you know? So I, I think, I think there is a correlation and I, Mm -hmm. I was just struck by the echoes that I noticed reading. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about, I hadn't made that connection, but it makes sense. Um, let's talk about your fourth book, which is letters to a young poet by Raina Maria Rilke, which was published four years after his death, posthumously in 1929. Mm -hmm. Um, This was just so fun to dig this out. And I just have to say it was so lovely to do because um, I haven't read Rilke for a while. And I had this copy and I I knew it was on my shelf somewhere. And I went searching for it. And then it's a slim little book and I read it. Uh, in the evening a few nights ago and I came across and I realized it was an it's marked up as you know so often my books are and I kept thinking it's so strange these markings like what the the whole chunks that just weren't marked and then these very specific underlinings and then I came to this passage and I realized oh it was back when my husband and I were getting married and I was looking for a piece to read at our wedding not me but to have read and um and I came across the piece that we had read at our wedding. And I realized it was my wedding anniversary that night that I was reading it. And it was just this lovely serendipity of we'd been married 12 years. And here I am reading Rilke, which is not something I ordinarily do on a Sunday evening. <laughs> and here I am stumbling across this passage. And this, we talk about it a little bit on the show, what rereading is that it's such an interesting revisiting of oneself, not yes. just of the text, that, yes. that it is a slipping on old shoes or a dress mm-hmm. that doesn't fit anymore, or, you know, that there's such an interesting um, 
reinvigorating that happens of the old self that that once read this work. So thank you for a little trip down memory lane. My (laughs) husband was dazzled when I copied out a little bit of Rilke and handed it to him. He was like, I didn't know you were such a romantic, but it was lovely. What passage was it that you were marking for your wedding? I'll read you a little section Mm -hmm. of it because it was fun to find it. Um, I hold this to be the highest task for a union of two people that one shall guard the other's solitude. For if it is the nature of indifference and of the multitude to acknowledge no solitude, love and friendship exists to give continually opportunity for solitude. Uh, And I uh, wrote in my card to him, I'm so grateful for our prescience and I'm so grateful Mm -hmm. that we, uh, I can truthfully say we are the guardians of one another's solitude Mm -hmm. that, that, um, Maybe other areas may, may not be as robust as we promised them to be, but uh, he's there holding down the fort so that I can be in here with you and yeah. I keep the littles at bay so that he can write as well. So it, that that part has held true. But um, enough about my relationship to Rilke. Tell me about <laughs> yours and um, uh, yeah, well, when I, you came across this. I think so. What that's making me think is how, you know, as with Pema Chodron, as I said, I just feel like it's it's been by my side forever and I can always dip into it. And I think it's true also for me with Letters to a Young Poet that it's it's been there for me at particular moments. And you're right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I discovered Letters to a Young Poet in my 20s living in Berlin, which was divided mm-hmm. at the time. And so you read it in German? I read it in German and Rilke's German. Wow is so lush and gorgeous and mm. unlike anyone else's German. Um, mm. And it was part of the central European world. I mean, so, yeah, so I think of Rilke, I think of my first encounter with Rilke when I was the age of that young poet who actually was a young military cadet who was a wooden yes. poet, which I actually like about that, that he, he was writing to all of us, right? And and all of us yes. doing whatever we're doing and wondering if we've chosen the right vocation and, feeling like we could write poetry, but really it was, he was asking the questions of becoming human and love and solitude. And mm. um, so, yeah, so there's very much um, a way in which when I look back at letters to a young poet, I am transported back to some part of myself that is forever mm. 24, 25. <laughs> and as you say, has, um, has relationships, but, but, you know, I, you also have this vision of the relationships ahead of you. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think his message that, um, you know, he keeps saying to the military, to, to Franz Kapwas, he keeps saying, you know, um, before you immerse or enmesh, as we would say now with another mm-hmm. human being, know yourself. Mm-hmm. And, but also just, holding up solitude as a, as something valuable Mm -hmm. and even as something valuable to protect within the context of a relationship. And I think another thing for, with that book that is always with me is there's a part where he says, um, he says everything in nature. He's, he, he says, he says just because something is hard may be exactly a reason to do it. Hmm. And he says, everything in nature grows and becomes itself against all obstacles to be, to become itself. Right. And, Mm. and he says, solitude is difficult. Yes. Mm. He says, love is difficult. Mm. And all of that is more a reason to do it and to do Mm. it, um, as well as we possibly can. And yeah, so there's a part of me, there's my 20 something self, um, I think there's my 40-something self re-examining vocation. Did you know there's a new translation of it out? I didn't know. I knew that there was a new one, that, that um, a, a run that I read about recently that includes Kapus's letters as oh, well, that, which that, I think is fascinating. There's also that. They discovered his letters, yeah, Kapus's letters to him, which apparently yes. are not that interesting. No, terrible, um, but kind of fun terrible, to have them yeah. as like um, <laughs> no, interviewed, So Joanna Macy and Anita Barrows, who are a Buddhist teacher and a therapist and a mm. poet who've, who've translated 
um, a couple of other Rilke's books have done a new translation of this. And I just interviewed them recently. Oh, I, you, wow. would, you would like it. Should, because, I'll go find and, it. Yeah, great. Women talking. And I said to them also, is there's my, there's my 20 year old self, there's my 40 year old self. There's also, you know, after my marriage to someone who's British, <laughs> I understand your, your <laughs> the cultural differences. <laughs> <laughs> after my marriage ended, it was mm. also, first of all, uh, I think honoring solitude as not something that one is abandoned to, but that has yeah. such richness. And yeah. also, in a way, I think understanding that in my marriage, I got so enmeshed, right? I mean, he talks about, you know, you keep space between yourselves. So you mm. keep discovering so that you keep each becoming. Mm. And what does he say? Two solitudes saluting each other. Ah. Um, so, That's yeah, beautiful. I just feel like the book has been with me in important ways at very important junctures. Mm. Yeah, mm. it's beautiful. He says, love is perhaps the most difficult of all our tasks, the work for which all other work is but preparation, yeah. which for someone who loved his work and revered it as passionately as he does, did feels, uh, you know, Big, big words to say, to say that love is actually really what we're here for. Um, yes. And I think also, as I grow older, um, just really exulting in the many forms of love mm. in a life. I think when we're young, we're just so focused and it's probably also biological, right? We, mm-hmm. we, there's that, you know, that, that urge to mate and to, mm-hmm. um, but love in all its forms, the love of friendship, the love we have for our children, um, which is constantly transforming across mm. the span of their lives because they are constantly transforming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the love we have, um, you know, this one is trickier, but the love we have for colleagues. Um, mm. And I think so much of us, we're now, you know, we're reshaping that world of work um, I think we're moving those boundaries around. You know, another thing that Rilke was so prescient about was gender. Yeah, you know, there's a part which I which doesn't people don't know about. Everybody know, you know, if, if they know it, they know. Oh, and the other thing, of course, is living the questions. There's so much in this book that's really fundamental mm. to my life that we should love questions themselves, mm. um, hold questions themselves, and when we when the answer is not given to us or, or we could not live the answer, we should live the question. Mm. And uh, I mean, first of all, a reverence for questions is part of my, you know, part of what I do. And, um, and I also have, have really taken that living the questions idea as a life practice. Mm. And I have found that if you are faithful to a question, it is faithful back to you. And, I feel like that is also civilizational work right now. Mm. Um, we know that we have these vast challenges. I mean, so many of the of the things that you and I could list of what is facing us as a species and as a world, we don't have answers for. We don't have mm. solutions. We don't have fixes. Uh, they are these vast, aching, open questions. Mm. Uh, and yet we must walk towards them and we must walk with them. So mm. I have found across these probably 40 years that I've been, uh, that Rilke has been a friend to me and a companion, um, his ideas become more and more resonant. Mm. I think you um, you touched on so many things there that I wanted to talk about. One was the sort of multiplicity of love and uh, I, I couldn't agree more growing older feels about a widening of, of yes. that and, and an, an inv- invitation to mm-hmm. uh, exactly that to have to children, your pets, your friends, mm-hmm. you know, we were in lockdown um, so grateful for the one other family that we, we hunkered down with who have children exactly my age and they've recently gone off to the east coast we're in LA and we're apart for the first time in a year and a half and all of us are missing them like with an ache and uh my the mama the my beloved soul sister best friend and I were on the phone yesterday and I was saying you know to to be handed family a whole nother family at this stage in our lives 
just feels like this extraordinary gift that we got given. My children aren't missing their best friends. They're missing their cousins is, is right. the best I can, can give it. And, and I'm missing this person who I hiked with and forsook the world for <laughs> really quite happily right. because of this sisterhood that we, that we had and the interchangeability of her children and my children and the sleepovers. And, uh, that, that, uh, that felt like something extraordinary that we redeemed from this, from this dark, dark moment mm. that we were in and really reinforced you know, I was listening again to you and Esther Perel, who I yes. love, and um, I'm going to coax on this show. If it kills me, I must have her because I, I really genuinely. Or if you want, if you need help, I'll help you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I really do. I. It's truly, truly selfish. I want to know the books that formed her. I really do. It's that simple. Like I, I I've read everything she's ever written. I, I revere yeah. the woman, and I think she's changing our culture for the better. Yeah. Um, but I was I was reminded of this listening to the two of you talk too, and thinking this is um, this is what she talks about. It is too much to ask of your husband that he be your right. lover, your mentor, right. your father, your best yeah. friend, your and and the lockdown really asked that of of, <laughs> of us. Um, that it is so healthy, I guess. Is yes, go inward as Rilke, you know encourages us yes cultivate solitude and yes let love mean mm. as many things as it can possibly mean in your life yeah. let it mean the friendships that enrich and the distant cousins or the the contact you know via zoom for an hour with someone yeah. that you have longed to meet your whole life i think um i think it's uh, a wonderful thing to to widen out in this moment Let's talk about your last book because I don't want to run out of time. Your last book, I did not know and was very <laughs> thrilled to learn about. Uh, your last book is called The Invention of Nature, Alexander von Humboldt's New World by Andrea Wolf, and it was published in 2015. Yeah. Tell me how you came to this book and how it has changed you. So I was a little bit surprised when I pondered your invitation for the five mm -hmm. books, that this was one that came to mind. And um, wow, I would say this is also for me a recent, uh, it doesn't seep. So in 20, it must have been 2017, um, I took a sabbatical. I had worked my way into a state of total exhaustion. Hmm. Um, and I went... Um, to Scotland for a month, which is an important mm. place for me. Mm. And I went to Australia mm. and I think I brought that book back with me. So I think it must've just been published. Mm -hmm. Somehow it feels connected to the sabbatical. And actually I can't tell you exactly why that is, but well, I know I was, I was also trying to write a book, which I, which I decided this year that I can't finish right now. <laughs> But I, um, I wrote that takes such courage to know. Yeah, it was well. It felt it was one of these things that felt like failure, but things fell apart, right? Things um, fall apart. I'm thrilled. I congratulate you on knowing <laughs> that it's not so ready much. to be finished. I really do. Thank you. But, but the thing is, I that book um, uh, entered my imagination as I was writing and. And it's still the writing and the thinking that he did around this have still been really important as I navigate uh, the world now. And then, of course, this last year, which has this last year and a half, which have have had such rupture, um, but I also feel have opened us to walking into the future. Theme that emerged for me in what I've been thinking about, and it's really that much more intense and present now, is the possibility of human wholeness, which I feel we are being given, for certainly we are being given the kind of existential crisis civilizationally that either makes you or breaks you. Mm. Um, we also have tools, just like as you and I have been speaking about, we have science that helps us understand ourselves. Um, and that, that knowledge that can be a form of power um, to really becoming more fluent in our humanity, right? To rising to our best capacities as human mm -hmm. beings. Um, 
So, and I've, and I've really become aware as I thought about that modernity and the enlightenment, as much good as there's been in them, it really divided us up. And, it, and it's partly how we came to understand ourselves in the last few hundred years was, was a science of parts. You know, the body was divided I and mean, everyone had their mm-hmm. specialties. And yes. we, and, and even, if, you know, even this language of body, mind, spirit, I feel, I believe that people will look back a hundred years and just shake their heads at how quaint that was because yeah. all of these things are, are wildly interconnected. And that's what mm. we're learning, right? The vagus nerve doesn't know the difference between body, mind, and spirit. Right. And so anyway, so Alexander von Humboldt, uh, just one more story about it. So when I lived in divided Berlin, the city that was divided by the Cold War, um, the Humboldt University was on the eastern side of the wall. So mm-hmm. to me, there's this incredible symbolism in this now because this this university was in this 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 fragment of a country that had mm. been walled off from the rest and from the mm. world. And Alexander von Humboldt was in this tradition of science that we that we don't remember, but I, I think that we are kind of evolving back towards, which was which was holistic, right? I mean, that's right. a word we would use. It was right. in fact us it was it was you know, Goethe was uh, wrote novels and poems and he studied light and color. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so it's all these people who had us who were who were exploring and seeking to understand the world both scientifically and also in ways that we would consider to be artistic, literary, mm-hmm. poetic, and understanding that only with bringing, with bringing those different languages we have and those different lenses we have together can you see the fullness of things. Mm. In some ways, I think he understood the concept of ecosystem, although, you know, that word is, we've been using it about hundred years. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just, so, so one of the, there's a chapter, so I, I didn't know this. I, I knew of von Humboldt, but I did not know that the word cosmos, um, the way it came into modern vocabulary is with a book that von Humboldt wrote, Cosmos with a, with a K and what he meant by cosmos, because, you know, the way we use it is like it's outer space, right? It's out there. Cosmos uh-huh. was, was, was the world in here. And it was, it was all of this. It did not, it did mm. not disconnect the human mm. cosmos from, from what is around us and outside us. Mm. And I feel like that is knowledge that we have possessed and that some cultures have hung on to much more than Western capitalism. Mm-hmm. We, we perceive our, 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 our natural wholeness and we're kind of putting ourselves back together. And, you know, if we survive this century, I mean, I think if you look at one way you could look at what we did with the natural world in modernity is that we made of the natural world and other Mm. when it was always part of us and we were part of it. And now in this very grave moment, we are having to acknowledge that. And von Humboldt also even a hundred, couple hundred years, I think it was early 19th century. There's a passage in that book in the invention of nature. He is going around the world and he sees he, he talks about how he can see that one day that there will be consequences of gas and steam. Mm. <laughs> and he sees the interrelationship between the natural world and the economies that are being built and the industries that are being built and how human beings kind of create their inner worlds. Mm. So what that tells me is that there, that, that there are things that we're learning that we actually already know that we have this apprehension of them. And somehow we come into our capacities to make them real, to act on that basis. And so, I don't know. I just feel like that book gave me this framework for Mm. this momentous time Mm. and seeing it as, you know, a species moment, Mm. And I have already seen how science and all of our other disciplines 
are really speaking to each other and conversing in a new way. And, you know, we have very well publicized hostilities between a fragment of science and, you know, it's, 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 it's a, there's a core, there are quarrels Mm -hmm. that are very specific and they don't reflect actually what is quite majestic. That's also going Mm -hmm. on in terms of Mm -hmm. what we're learning about our bodies, our brains. I just recently interviewed Suzanne Samard, who's the, the scientist who's helped us understand that trees speak to each other and that a forest Mm -hmm. is a single organism, but we're Mm -hmm. learning that about everything. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's it. The possibility of wholeness is what that book gave me. Beautiful. And I love that it surprised you and you included it anyway on the list. I'm I'm always so grateful. Uh, I know it's hard. I had my producer interview me in season one so that I could have the experience of being asked to pick the five books that have shaped me. And and I I love it when my guests don't second guess themselves, Mm. but allow. It's a great exercise. It's fantastic. It's, it's a really, um, I love the question. I I love the question. What are the books that have formed you? Because, because I, because every book to me does form you. I'm actually trying to sort of write a a piece about this now, uh, because I think it's helpful for me anyway, to kind of collate my thoughts of why I came up with the podcast, but also what I've learned by, by doing it, because in the reading around that I've done, to make season three, um, I have felt myself change in Mm. absorbing these books Mm -hmm. from my 12 different guests and their five books. I have felt the shifts and the um, adjustments in the rubble, if you like, for me. And, And that feels... Like I'm, I'm the proof in the pudding of what this, of what, of the effect that books have, and and that I'm always so delighted when people add the ones that surprise them, their yeah. unexpected ones, because those are so often the ones. It's also part of the thing that I've, I'm realizing doing the show is, um, it's an interesting question to ask oneself, whether you're on my podcast or not, because uh, what shows up on that list is is f- fascinating and what's not on that list is also i think really mm-hmm. interesting yes. uh i was scrupulous and did not rewrite myself when i offered my five books and mine are five straight white men all my authors and i would wish it other but mm-hmm. that is not the case mm-hmm. and so rather than shame my whiteness and my lack of sort of um plurality, I just take that as an invitation to widen out, to read more, to investigate further. And this podcast has has really afforded me that. And it's why I, I make it to share with other people, because I think that um, it's so easy to read within the perimeter or in the shallows that you know, and it's so, so provocative to uh, dive into the deeper waters and, and dabble about in, in waters that you might otherwise never have thought to, to swim in. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's, it's a real gift, right? It's a, it's a, a, a it's a gift that you give the gift, the guest and the listeners. Um, hmm. Even this about Humboldt and the invention of nature. Um, I'm not sure that I, until I was asked this question by you for this conversation had put together how much it had formed me. Huh. It's so interesting. I'm so curious when your book is ready. Uh, I'd be so curious to read it, knowing that this was part of the backdrop of it. Yeah. It's really, it's really uh, in, enlightening. Um, Krista, thank you. This was an absolute pleasure and a privilege and such a treat to spend time with you and to spend time with your books. I've loved my week. I've really loved my week of, <laughs> of living in your, in your books. Um, so thank you. Thank you again. The other thing I wanted to mention is I just downloaded the app, oh. the On Being Wisdom app, yes. and I've loved it. I just started the course on hope and that you'd started it and began with hope felt yeah. to me so apt and so um, surprising and yet entirely right. I, I've just loved it. So thank you for that. Oh, that you. makes me so happy. Please play around with it. We We have to keep you know, it's a new adventure. So I'd love mm. to know what you think or how it can be better. Thank you for inviting me to be part of this. It means a Thank lot. Thank you. 
Well, I'm so grateful to Krista for her time and for her books. It was a really wonderful thing to dive back into Pema Chodron and meet Parker Palmer's book, which I highly recommend. I'm halfway through it and just loving it. Um, my Grandmother's Hands is another one that's on my bedside table now. My bedside is just a teetering pile of books. I wonder which of these books you'll respond to and what makes it onto your list. I'm also curious, I have a bookshelf full of self-help books. They range from parenting to creativity to meditation. Is this a genre you like? And if so, if you had to pick one, what's the book that falls into that genre that has most shaped you? What made its biggest impact, do you think, in the books that categorize as self-help? Leave your thoughts on Bookish with Sonia uh, on Instagram. My thanks to Karen Navarre for helping make this ep episode happen. And as always, to Brie Weiss for producing us. Please find the books in the show notes or on the website. And like and subscribe and leave us a review. It makes a difference. Uh, tell your friends about the show. Buy them a book. And keep reading. Join me next week for my guest, the extraordinary human that is Amy Mullins. 